You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray one more time. Lord, we need you, and so we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have come to us, And that now, through the preaching of your word, by your spirit, we can come to know you and behold you and treasure you above all things. We pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears to hear what you have prepared for us this morning in your word. That you will remove whatever obstacle in myself or in any of us to hear that, Lord. And not just to hear it, but to live it. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray this in your wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, Good evening. It's a joy to be here. My name is Stephen Morales. I uh, am a pastor at Iglesia Reforma in Guatemala City. And uh, it's a joy for me personally to be here. Um, I've known Clint for a couple years now. And uh, this is my third time, I think, in Albuquerque, first time. I don't think uh, Christ Church existed yet. Did it? No, I don't think it did yet. Or, no? Turn it up? Here? Oh. Oh, I left. That's true. No, but the first time, I don't think it exists. The second time I came here, Clint told me, hey, you should come to church. And I was like, sure. And I bought my flight for uh, Sunday afternoon to leave because I thought this was a church that met Sunday mornings. But I learned quickly that I made a horrible mistake. So I wasn't able to come here last time, but um, got it right this time. So um, real quick, from Guatemala, born and raised, have a wife, we've been married almost seven years. She's in med school, she's almost done with med school. So that's wonderful news for our marriage. Um, But we're real happy to almost be done with that. Um, We passed her along with Oscar, uh, who was here last time. He did get the flight right. Along with Oscar and another guy named Justin, we pastor a small uh, church in Guatemala City. We have a young church. We're two years 
old. And so we appreciate your prayers, and we're just so thankful for your guys' partnership in the gospel um, with the Barreras uh, in San Miguel Chicac, but also with Christ Church. Um, it's been incredible the last couple of years being able to come here, be trained, learn from you guys, go and take that to our church, and then to be able to take that as well to uh, the pastors in San Miguel Chicac. Um, this is what we were talking with Clint earlier today. This is what missions is about. This is what gospel kingdom partnerships should look like, all of us working together uh, towards one goal, which is to exalt Christ um, and to preach the word. And so um, we're really grateful. The people of Iglesia Reforma, I know Justin, who's not here, is also really grateful for you guys and for your pastors. So for our time in the word today, we're going to be in Matthew 26, 36 to 46. That's really easy to remember and from, from what I gather, you guys just started in uh, the gospel according to John. So we're going to skip uh, a little couple verses here to get to uh, the end of the story a little bit. But there's a lot to dig into in the gospels. And I'm sure Nathan or, or Clint will preach this better than I in a few months. But my prayer is that by the Spirit, our hearts would be open to treasure Christ just a little bit more. And in treasuring him more, that we'd become more like him. And so if you've read through and explored the Gospels, then you know that they're full of um, stories, historical accounts, moments in which Jesus shared with different kinds of people from all walks of life. And every interaction that Jesus has with someone leaves that person changed or different than what they were before. Whether he completely exposes their hypocrisy or their flagrant sin, whether he does it with compassion or with stern conviction, all of these interactions reveal to us something, not just of the people that he's speaking or interacting with, but also about Jesus himself, his character, his power, his mission. And so this things, the thing about these stories about Jesus is that in them, not a, not a word or a moment or an interaction is wasted. Not a single conflict or difficulty or relationship that Christ has is wasted. Jesus uses all these things to teach his disciples and now to teach us through the disciples' writings something about himself, something about the gospel. And so the life of Christ by some is, is described, it almost functions or can be seen as a, a series of questions and answers on the most fundamental topics of our faith. Jesus answers the questions that we are dying to know with his life, questions about the nature of God, questions about the gravity of sin, about our need for a savior. And if you've ever asked yourself, why do I believe in what I believe, then you need to look no further than Jesus himself. He'll answer that question. And by the grace of God, the life of Christ is recorded in this book that we have, the Bible, in these gospels. But the Bible doesn't present the answers to our questions in a, in a systematic form like a textbook. Rather, God tells us the wonderful story in which he doesn't just present superior arguments or ideas to our doubts. He does something a whole lot better. Pastor Timothy Keller is known for his special ability to communicate, interact, debate with skeptics of the Christian faith. And he tells a story once of an unbelieving man who approached him and once asked him in all sincerity, why can't you just give me an airtight argument? If you could just give me an airtight argument for the existence of God, for Jesus, for the gospel, then, then I'd believe, then it'd be easy. I would do it. And Keller responded, what if God did not send us an airtight argument, 
but an airtight person. Jesus, against whom ultimately there is no argument. And this is a point of one of Keller's books, Encounters with Jesus, which I strongly recommend you check out. When Jesus is confronted by the doubts and the pain and the suffering in this world, he doesn't just offer an argument or a superior idea, he offers himself. And that's why when Mary and Martha were, were brokenhearted because of the death of their brother Lazarus, Jesus doesn't break out the whiteboard and start explaining his eschatological views or the doctrine of resurrection. Jesus just says, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm your hope. And so today's passage looks at the lament of our Savior Jesus in the moment of suffering. And, and just to be clear about what we're talking about, we're looking at a passage uh, we're looking at this passage so that we can understand how to process our own pain as well, because we're looking at Jesus's pain. And so the point that we want to make is that in the midst of our pain and suffering, our hope isn't placed in an argument or an idea. Our hope is placed ultimately in a person. Our faith is about a person, Jesus, who is the way, who is the truth and the life. So today we want to get to know him a little bit better, love him a little bit more and, and treasure him because of how he has loved us. So I remember the first Sunday of our church, we were about two and a couple months years old. We celebrated our second anniversary in this past July. Um, I remember our first Sunday that we would open doors. I'm sure it was similar to how it was here when you first started having services on Sunday af evenings, afternoons. And it was an exciting moment for us. We had been meeting in Oscar's backyard for a while. And then in Guatemala, we just have dry season and rainy season. And so rainy season started, and so we couldn't meet in Oscar's backyard anymore. And so we found a place, an, an old abandoned warehouse in a kind of weird-looking alley, and uh, we started meeting there. We cleaned it out. It was full of garbage, and we hung up some curtains because we couldn't put walls, and uh, we you know, got a djembe and the guitar and everything, and we just started doing services. And it was an exciting Sunday. We were all really happy about it. But I remember that Sunday it being a particularly difficult Sunday for me um, because just two days before, that Friday before, um, I'd received a phone call from my mother and she told me that one of my best friends had just passed away. And uh, he hadn't just passed away, actually, but he had been murdered. Um, this friend uh, who I knew from childhood but kind of lost touch with over the years had gotten involved in a lot of um, sketchy things, and I won't go into all those details, but he had been murdered um, pretty brutally. Um, he had gone out on Friday, which was, or the Thursday, the night before, because it was his birthday. So he went out with some friends, went out to party. Um, the next day, they found his body in a ditch. So hearing that kind of news just weighs on you for many reasons. Um, the Saturday, the, that, that day after the Friday, I, I went to his funeral, or to his wake, when I went in there, I saw his parents, hugged them, held them, um, saw his brother and sister, and they hugged them and held them as well, and just felt like they were, of course, it was like, of course, they're going to hug you really hard, but it just felt like they were hugging me like extra hard and holding on to me as if like I was their brother or something like that. It just felt different. When I, when I, we released the embrace and, and I turned around and looked, I noticed there was nobody really there. I mean, a couple friends of his parents, but Nobody his age, nobody from when we were kids. And it just felt heavy. Like all the people from this other lifestyle he was living, this dangerous lifestyle he was living, because it was messed up with some gang warfare kind of stuff. And 
And nobody from that life was there. And there was nobody there to, to mourn him. And I just wonder, like just all this just weighed on my heart. My heart was heavy because I had lost a friend who I had kind of lost, already lost touch with for many years. My heart was heavy because from what I knew, he didn't love Jesus. He had left that part of his life. He went to Sunday school and that was about it. And there was no indication that he ever repented or changed his ways. So I felt the pain, I felt heavy because this was something that happened to his family. I knew his brother, I knew his sister, I knew his parents and what they were going through. And it was heavy because this is this kind of thing, at least in Guatemala, happens all the time. And this is not the first friend of mine that that's happened to, and it's not, it wasn't the last. And so feeling these kind of, this kind of weight, that first Sunday that we open doors and everybody's happy and joyous, and hey brother, how you doing? And smiles on your faces. Despite that joy, my heart was heavy. I said hi to people. I was genuinely, genuinely happy for what God was doing in our church thing. This is another reason why we need to plant a church. But on the inside, also feeling the weight that this just kind of hurt. And I didn't know what to do about it. I was never really brought up to process pain in the church. I was brought up to smile and shake people's hands and treat every gathering like it was a party. Not, and these aren't, aren't bad things to do, but I grew up sensing that these feelings or expressions of out, outer happiness was kind of the only way we could act in church. Often hearing things like, leave your worries at the door, stop thinking about your problems, think about Jesus. The, the problem with that kind of way of thinking is that I, I pick up those problems once again. I, I feel that pain when I walk out the door and I'm, and I'm back to square one. So how do we lament? How do we mourn? The, the presence and the power of sin in this world? How do we express sorrow for these things? How do we cry to God? How do we ask why? There's gotta be room in the church for these kind of prayers to, to repeat, repeat the prayer of, of David. Consider his words in Psalm 31, 10 says, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. There were moments in which David rejoiced in the Lord and moments in which he wished he had never been born. It's these kind of sorrowful prayers, these laments that give a voice to our pain. One theologian even encouraged us to pray the Psalms of lament, describing them kind of as a way to curse without cursing, as a way to say a bad word without saying the bad word. And what he means is that the laments help us express our frustration and our pain and suffering without sinning. They say what's really on our hearts without sinning from the heart. And so our passage in, in Matthew this morning is not a, it's not a psalm of lament. It's not a lament of the King David, but rather it's the lament of the son of David who was about to fulfill the promise and the will of his father by dying on a cross in our place. So here we see an honest picture of Christ at the peak of vulnerability in the midst of affliction. So Jesus was approaching the end of his ministry, and for Christ, the end of his ministry would culminate in the end of his life. Everything he did and, and preached, was everything in his ministry was leading up to this moment, the hour of his death, his perfect sacrifice. 
And so at this point, Judas had already left to bring the soldiers to arrest him. And and knowing the pain that was awaiting him, Jesus did what every Christian ought to do in the midst of pain. He went to his father. Jesus took his disciples with him to the Garden of Gethsemane, a quiet and familiar place. And he told them to wait. And then he took his closest friends to an even more private place to pray. And he asked Peter, John, and James to pray for him as well. And so what was supposed to be a a prayer meeting, a a gathering to pray, turned into a sleepover. His his best friends at the hour before his greatest affliction fell asleep. So in, in a sense, in his greatest moment of need, his friends abandoned him. And of course, we know Judas to be the, the betrayer. Judas is known as the disciple who betrayed Jesus, but we know that really all the disciples betrayed Jesus beginning here in the garden, pray for me, and they fell asleep. It shouldn't surprise us then that when the soldiers arrive to arrest Jesus, all the disciples betray him as well. They abandoned him, literally Mark 14, 15 says, and they all left him and fled. But you and I know that this was to fulfill the scriptures. Zechariah 13, seven says, awake, O sword against my shepherd, Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. This act of betrayal was just the beginning of Christ's afflictions, of Christ's suffering. And he knew this. So what did he do? He prayed. He went to his father. Now, have you ever asked yourself why it is that whenever we're in a group gathering or a group setting, Um, And we say, hey, who would like to pray? Maybe it's before a Bible study or maybe it's before eating or something like that. But you ask that question, who would like to pray? Nobody answers, right? We like pretend we're sleeping or close our eyes or like we're gonna, you know, bow our heads first. That way you can't make eye contact anymore or something like that, right? Nobody really likes to jump up at the opportunity. Now, Now, why is that? I think there's a lot of reasons why that could happen. But I think in part... One of the reasons why sometimes we don't like to pray in front of others is because prayer obligates us to be vulnerable. Prayer obligates us to be vulnerable before God and vulnerable before others. When when we pray, we must be honest because the person we're praying to knows us better than we know ourselves. We can't lie to him, we can't hide from him. He knows us, he knows our sins, he knows our idols, but he also knows our pain. And in this moment of of vulnerability, Jesus has before his father, we, we see the broken heart of Christ, who is God and man, and he's experiencing this cosmic internal conflict that you and I, thankfully, will never have to face if we are in Christ. His prayer was, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not, not my will, but yours be done. So what's Jesus asking for here? In this moment of darkness, Jesus is asking his father if there's another way to accomplish his will without having to suffer the brutal death that awaited him, the cup 
that he's asking to be passed from him represents the divine fate ordained by God that awaited him. And And the cup that Jesus was to drink was filled to the brim with wrath. Wrath stored up over the ages for the sins of man to be poured out on the Son of God. My sins, your sins. Jesus knew the scriptures very well. He had them memorized. So try to imagine Jesus reciting all these passages, all these prophecies of how the the Messiah will suffer. Think about Isaiah 53, that famous, well-known passage. How does Jesus read that? When we read that, it, it sounds great because it's talking about someone else suffering. But Jesus reads Isaiah 53 like this. He's, he reads it, I was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. I was despised and they esteemed me not. Surely I have borne their griefs and carried their sorrows. Yet they esteemed me stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But I was pierced for their transgressions. I was crushed for their iniquities. Upon me was the chastisement that brought them peace. And with my wounds, they are healed. All of them, like sheep, have gone astray. They have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on me the iniquity of them all. Jesus understood from the beginning that his fate was not simply to come to this world and be a great teacher and be a good guy and love people and heal them. His fate, his cup, was to be the man of sorrows, to bear the iniquities of all men. This was the will of the Father. And so the fact that when, uh, that Jesus asked his father if, if he could take this cup away, if there's another way to do this, is incredible. It reminds us that his death was real and brutal. But perhaps what is even more incredible is that Christ concludes his prayer saying, not as I will, but as you will. Not my will be done, but your will be done. I don't, I don't know how it is in, in Albuquerque, but in Guatemala, many times we approach God like the genie in the lamp, right? We, we ask for things, but when God doesn't come through with the things that we ask for, then we immediately reject him and cover up our selfishness with lame excuses. Like, God must not love me, or he just doesn't listen to my prayers. He's just not there for me. He's just not fair. But maybe God did answer. Maybe the answer was no. Or maybe we're not asking the right for the right things. Or, or, or maybe we just don't know how to ask. But the fact that God doesn't do what we ask him to or tell him to do doesn't mean that he's not there or that he's not listening. It just means that he probably has a better plan to sanctify you than you do. Or, or picture it this way. Imagine that you were in a dating relationship. Maybe you haven't read the little orange book yet, but you're dating someone. And so let's just pretend you have that, that you're dating this person, this guy or this girl, and they always say how much they love you and they just love spending time with you and they're all about you and that's great. But every time, you've noticed that every time you guys get together, there's not one conversation, there's not one day or anything like that, that your boyfriend or girlfriend doesn't ask you for something. Buy me this, buy me that, whether it's a phone or clothes or concert tickets, whatever. Buy me, buy me, buy me. So you, you realize, you know, my credit card is not going to be able to handle this. So you tell him or her, you know, we just can't keep this up. So uh, right now I'm just not going to buy you anything. Next thing you know, they break up with you. 
send you a text over the phone that you bought him and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I don't, I'm not interested in this relationship. I thought you loved me. I thought this was a loving, giving relationship, but apparently I was wrong. Now, that's, that's a little dysfunctional, right? There's something wrong with that. And what you, what you realize is that ultimately that person didn't really love you. They just loved the things that you could give them. Many of us have this exact same dysfunctional relationship with God. I love you, I want you, but here's a list of things I need if this relationship is going to work, okay? And, it, and if my needs aren't met, then I'm out. It sounds kind of like a, a terrorist hostage situation. Here's, here's my list of demands. And, and we know those never end well. The, the problem is we don't want God and we don't want to follow his will. We want what God can give us. We want his stuff. We want it according to our will. But by God's grace, Jesus doesn't manage his relationship with his father this way. As, as one songwriter puts it, but does not the father guide the son? Not my will, but yours be done. What else here to do? What else me but you? Knowing the path that was before him, he humbled himself. He wept with his father. He shared the burden of his heart. And some will say, well, apparently God didn't answer his prayer. Apparently God wasn't listening because he didn't take it away. He still let his son die. That's sin talking. Many of us, when we pray in moments of suffering and affliction, we ask God to solve our immediate problem. I'm sick, take away the sickness. I'm anxious, take away the anxiety. I'm depressed, take away the depression. I'm in debt, take away the debt. I'm hurting, take away the pain. Make me feel better now. And I, I get that, I've, I've done that. And I don't think there's a problem with asking God to do that. I mean, that's what Jesus was doing here, right? He was asking God if there was another way. That's not the problem. The problem is how we respond, whether or not God does remove it. How we react to our prayers being answered in a way that we don't like or we didn't anticipate. How we respond when God says no. The will of God is not to change our circumstances. He's much more interested in changing our hearts. He's much more interested in seeing the gospel grow in our hearts from the moment he saves us from ourselves and by the power of the Spirit sanctifies us in likeness to Christ. And, and many times God's answer isn't to change our immediate circumstances, but, to, he, but rather what he does is he strengthens us and, and helps us so that we can outlast and endure our difficult circumstances. We can endure the pain of the moment. We can remain faithful and in obedience to the Father. We can persevere and consequently through this, we can grow in holiness. So when Jesus prayed, we know the Father listened. And even though his will was not changed, Luke twenty-two forty-three 43 tells us, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. The Father sent an angel to strengthen the son so that he would outlast, so that he would endure the hardships, endure the pain, and remain faithful, not, not my will, your will, in the midst of suffering. And so maybe you're thinking, well, that sounds pretty nice. I'll take that. 
That sounds, sending an angel, that sounds to to comfort you and strengthen you. That sounds like a great display of God's love. Why doesn't he send me an angel? God did something even better. He sent Jesus. In Christ's moment of affliction, he said no to his son's prayer so that he could say yes to ours. He said no to his son's request to remove the cup of wrath so that when we cry to him to save us from his wrath, his wrath would already be satisfied. He allowed his son to experience the pain and the wrath for our sins, to drink the cup that was rightfully ours to drink so that we would drink of the cup of salvation and receive the holiness of Christ. He poured out his wrath on him to save us from an eternity of suffering. The will of the father was to sacrifice his son to save his people. And wherever you're at in life, the will of God is to sanctify you and to make you more like Christ. So if he hasn't given you what you've asked for, trust him, trust him in the midst of pain. Tim Keller says that the problem of pain in this world is really more a problem of how we understand it. If we are in pain, we reject God because we can't think of a reason for why he'd allow us to suffer. But just because we can't think of a good reason does not mean that the sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful God doesn't have one. It just means that we can't think of one because we don't know what he knows. And so to say that nothing good can come from suffering is to deny the very cross. Because it was on the cross that Christ suffered for us in our place and he accomplished our salvation. So our hope today is that all of our suffering has already been placed on Christ. He carried our sins and iniquities and whatever pains us in this moment, be it because of something we've done or something that's been done to us, it will not last. So the question is, how do we lament? In light of Christ's lament, how do we lament? We live in a world filled with bad news. In Guatemala, we've learned to expect it daily. We've grown accustomed to just live waiting to hear them. We're used to seeing stories of crime and corruption in our newspapers. We're used to feeling unsafe on our streets. We're used to just expect the worst out of people. But you don't have to be in Guatemala to hear bad news, right? Especially in these last weeks, we know parts of Mexico City were decimated by an earthquake. All the hurricanes that are happening in the States and also Puerto Rico and the Caribbean. In a world filled with bad news, how do we lament? How do we express our frustration and pain? Um, Herman Bavink, a, a Dutch author and theologian, once said that the only biblical way to respond to the power and influence of sin in this world is through Lament, not, not pessimism. It's easy to become a pessimist in this world. It's easy to just say everything's wrong, everything's going to hell. But there's a pattern in the laments of the scriptures that we must recognize. Pastor and, and writer Jerson Murray reminds us, contemplating the evil, he says that contemplating the evil that surrounds us can lead us to give up hope above all if we don't consider first who God is and what he has done to redeem us. And interestingly, the the laments of the Bible always start off recognizing, always begin mourning the the power and presence of sin, but they also always conclude declaring confidence and trust in the Lord because they know that he's powerful to save them. 
We see this time and time again in the Psalms, but we also see it in the New Testament. For instance, Paul in Romans 7 says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Regardless of of whose struggle this describes, one thing is clear. What begins as a frustrated lament ends with a declaration of gratefulness. He begins identifying a problem and ends trusting in the solution. It's good and healthy to feel the pangs of sin in this world. It reminds us that we're not of it, that we don't belong here. But our laments do not end in despair, but rather are turned up on their heads and by the power of God, they become moments to announce that God is greater than whatever difficulty we face in this moment. Because by his grace, we're gonna outlast, we will persevere any difficult, during any difficult circumstance we face today. And so in the laments, when we mourn, we recognize sin for what it is. But we remember that the resolution in Christ is even greater. We don't know all of Jesus' words when he prayed that prayer in the garden, but he did pray, your will be done, not my will, but yours. And his obedience all the way to the cross tells us enough. He lamented, but he obeyed, and he fulfilled the will of his Father. It is finished. So if you're going through a hard time, I'm, I'm sorry for that. And we can lament through that together. We don't minimize or diminish pain saying, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus went to his father. This is part of our experience living in a fallen world. It could be the death of a friend or it could be anything really. But in all these things, we can go to our father. Jesus in in his lament felt the weight of the cup the father had given him. And God answered his prayer not to remove the cup, but to strengthen him and comfort him as he continued to follow his will, the plan of salvation ordained from before time. So Jesus prayed the prayer. He taught his disciples to pray, your will be done. And he concluded that prayer like the laments in the Psalms, trusting in the sovereign power of his father. Writer Christina Fox says, like all of Jesus's works, his lament is for us. He suffered anguish and faced temptation at Gethsemane and overcame it. He knew the joy that lay on the other side of the cross and endured it for our sake. Because he suffered and sacrificed for us, we have been redeemed and adopted by the Father. Through Jesus, We can pray our own laments and with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In Christ, we can pray our own laments. We can pray our own prayers to the Father and draw near to the throne of grace, as Hebrews 4 tells us, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Let's pray. Father, we pray for comfort and strength. Comfort us in your word. To see the love of a good father who sent his son to save all his children. And strengthen us 
in our moments and seasons of hurt, of frustration, confusion, and pain. Help us to not place our comfort in circumstances, but rather give us faith, give us hope, give us peace. Help us trust you, even when, like Christ, we face what seem to be unbearable burdens. Help us remember that in Christ, he has already carried those burdens for us. We love you, Lord, because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com. Thank you.